let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, you say that all your word is given to teach us how to trust Jesus for life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training we would be equipped uh, to live as his followers, equipped for every good work. Uh, we pray now that you would grant through your spirit your word to do its work in our lives and you would help me to teach it truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, going through a big book like Deuteronomy is a bit like crossing the Nullarbor. After a while you kind of lose track of where you are. <laughs> You've lost sight of the big landmarks. Uh, so it's good from time to time to refresh, as it were, the screen, to locate ourselves in our journey through the book by reminding ourselves of where we've come from and where we're going. So the bulk of Deuteronomy is two speeches given by Moses on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan, from where the Israelites could see for themselves the land of promise, the land they've been travelling to for 40 years. Uh, there's a shorter speech, chapters 1 to 4, where Moses reminds the people of how they'd got to where they were and why it had taken them so long to get there after leaving Egypt. He spoke of their rebellion and that they were only there because the Lord was the only God and the God who had committed himself to their forefathers and that he was almighty, faithful and gracious, no dumb idol like the gods of the surrounding nations. And that's followed by Moses' longest speech, chapters 5 to 26, of which we are nearing the end. And uh, again, uh, that will be followed by, and we're going to go on to look at the, you know, renewal of the covenant and preparation for entering the land with the transfer of leadership to Joshua, then the song of Moses, and finally we will end with the death of Moses. So that's what lies ahead of us on our journey. Now this longer speech started in chapter 5 by recalling their experience at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel had entered into covenant relationship with the Lord and recalling the requirements of the covenant, the ten words, the ten commandments spoken directly to them by the Lord himself. And Moses had then <coughs> gone, again gone through their history, a history of rebellion to reinforce that it was only by God's grace and steadfast love that they were here on the border of the land and that it was only by being faithful to the Lord loving and fearing him wholeheartedly that they could occupy the land. It's not by bread alone that they would live, but by the word of the Lord. And from chapter 12, Moses has been giving them that word, the Lord's statutes, commands and rules, telling them how they can live in the land as the Lord's people, live as those who will continue to know his grace and kindness in relationship with him for generations to come. So where are we? Well, in chapter 24, we're almost at the end of Moses' second speech, at the end of those statutes and regulations. But when you're on a long journey, it's also good to be reminded from time to time of why you are taking the journey. Now, we're on this journey because Deuteronomy is a book for us, 21st century believers in Jesus. You see, Deuteronomy is a book about the grace of the righteous God, the only God, the Lord who rules heaven and earth, and how those who know his grace in rescuing them from slavery and death are to respond to his grace, 
respond by living in relationship with him, by trusting him and conforming their actions and attitudes to his will revealed in his word. And so it's a great book for believers in Jesus because we too are recipients of the grace of the Almighty God through believing in his Son, a grace which has rescued us from slavery to sin and death. And we too are called to live in relationship with our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, by trusting him and conforming our actions and will, actions and attitudes to his will revealed in his word. Oh yes, our place in God's big salvation plan is different from that of the Israelites. We come to Deuteronomy knowing that it's been fulfilled, that it's reached its goal in the teaching, life, death and rising of our Lord, knowing that we now relate to the living God in the new covenant Jesus brought into being by his death, not the Sinai covenant. And yes, our circumstances have changed. We don't live as a theocratic nation, a God-ruled nation-state, but in a pluralistic modern democracy. And we don't live in an agricultural society, say, without electricity, roads, refrigeration, modern plumbing, social security. The changes are immense. But Deuteronomy expresses the goodwill of the good, unchanging God for that society, making concrete in the circumstances of their lives what it was to love God and their neighbour. And believers in Jesus are also called, as we've already heard, to love God and love our neighbours. And so thinking about what love looked like in their circumstances will help us see what it is to love in our circumstances. In fact, where we receive Deuteronomy as it is, the word of God to help us to trust Jesus and equip us to live for him with lives of love and doing good, Deuteronomy is actually very helpful to us and our children. You see, Deuteronomy operates as the great antidote to many of the failings of 21st century Western Christianity, where we've been conformed to the values and thinking of our age. At failings that I too often see in myself and other believers, failings that actually frustrate love of our saving God and love of others. I've listed those, some of those failings, self-preoccupation, privatised religion, disproportionate emphasis, taking on a secular mindset, spiritual self-reliance and self-sufficiency, ingratitude, and I'll explain all those. But Deuteronomy 24 is an example of how God's law exposes and confronts those failings, and in so doing, helps us believers in Jesus who say we love Jesus, helps us to live trusting him and doing the good that brings him honour. Now, of course, it's always dangerous when I kind of give you the application before the exposition. So, again, test all things. Test what you hear. Well... Much of our society, as you know, with its selfies and you know, running narrative on our lives on social media like Facebook and Twitter, much of our society is self-preoccupied, if not narcissistic. Okay, And Western Christians can also have a faith that's self-preoccupied. Me and mine, us and ours, our salvation, our prosperity, our family, our freedoms, our worship, our... Now, they're all worthwhile things, but where we and me fill up our thinking of the focus of our concerns, something is wrong. 
the instruction of Deuteronomy resolutely turns us out to others, to others in different circumstances from our own, and to how to thinking about how we behave in relationship with them. Deuteronomy insists that God's people should be preoccupied with loving others and that we must not hide ourselves from our neighbours, especially our poor and needy neighbours, but think about them and their welfare. Let me give you two examples. Firstly, from verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and the Lord your, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the game. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, this was a provision that had already been commanded in the book of Leviticus, repeated here. Not all was to be taken from a field to allow the landless, the, the landless, uh, you know, the, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, the dignity of enjoying the goodness of the land through their own labour. Although they don't have land, they are to be able to share in the blessing of the land the Lord has given his people. And the three examples concern the three staples, grain for bread, olives for oil, grapes for wine. In God's provision, the economically weakest were to have access to the opportunities they needed to provide for themselves at the cost of the economically powerful, the landowners not getting out for themselves from their asset everything they possibly could. In fact, uh, verse 19 tells us that the landowners would enjoy God's provision as they were conscious of sharing it with others in need. Now, there's a lot to think about here. In, you know, is this use of property consistent, say, with business practices today that are focused on maximising profit and return to shareholders at the cost of the jobs of those who may not be able to get another job, taking away from them the opportunity to share in the benefits of our common economy by their own labour. That's worth thinking about. But for now we ought to register that the Lord expected his people going about their normal lives, making their livelihoods to be conscious of others and their needs and to share in making provision for them. Let's think again, perhaps more controversially, about verses 8 and 9. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now this is the only reference to the regulations surrounding unclean skin diseases in Deuteronomy and it's given to reinforce the authority of the Levitical priests to direct a person to be quarantined, to live outside the camp, an authority given to them in Leviticus 13. Now that authority is supported here by a reference to the Lord's own treatment of Miriam in Numbers 12, where the Lord insisted, verse 14, that Miriam should be shut outside the camp for seven days. 
quarantining of the infected both preserved purity and protected life and livelihoods. Now let's think about that. Being shut out was no doubt distressing for the person with the disease and burdensome on their family. But you see, it wasn't just about them and their experience. Spread of infection then and now impoverishes many. Public health was not left to private judgment based on personal experience. The priesthood was the group entrusted with those decisions. Now, there was no guarantee that their decisions, which if you read Leviticus involved close observation, would be perfect, that they would always get it right, they wouldn't make mistakes. Yet despite their fallibility, the Israelites had to abide by their decisions. And there was to be no false compassion, where the perceived need or grief of the individual with the disease was allowed to undermine the protection of the whole community. The decisions of those trained and entrusted with the responsibility to make those judgments had to be obeyed. You see, love looks beyond ourselves and our own particular needs to the common good and it sustains those institutions that seek the common good. Love and justice in this case commit to protecting the health of the community. And let me say that has obvious implications for believers in our society where, for example, there are debates about vaccination. <laughs> this is why I said, this may cause me more trouble, right? right? But then there are. Well, let me say, brothers and sisters, we should be grateful for a government that sustains a public health system and that supports vaccination. And we should participate so that there is in our community a herd immunity. Because, you see, that doesn't just protect you. Vaccination is not just about protecting you and your children. It's actually about protecting the most vulnerable in our community, the very young, the very old, those who are poor in immunity. Now, our authorities won't be perfect, but by God's common grace, they have a tested knowledge of disease and their decisions should be respected. As Samaras found out, it's not the vaccination, but the disease it seeks to prevent that should be feared. And having seen a baby with tetanus, you never want to see that again, okay? So the law tells me, tells you and I, that we should engage with the needs of others beyond myself and my interests. So do I give thought to provision for the poor? Ask yourself, in my daily living, in my work, in the way I give out work, do I think the common good ought to be accommodated to my needs, not just health needs? What about traffic, okay? Do I think I ought to be allowed to break the traffic rules to speed because I just have to get there, I'm an exceptionally safe driver, right? Or do I humble myself to pursue what is for the good of all? like keeping the traffic rules or maintaining public health priority policy. So the law opposes basically our selfish preoccupation and the law opposes privatised religion. We live in a society that can suggest religion is just about what you do in private and should have no impact on public life. It's just about me and my belief and believers can take on that mindset because actually we find it easier. 
But Deuteronomy insists that faith working through love embraces all of life. It's love seen in action in the world. It thinks about the kind of society that our attitudes and actions create and it seeks to create a just and kind society. Now nearly all of chapter 24 teaches this, but just two examples. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge for that would be taking a life in pledge. Now a pledge was something given to secure a loan, something put into the hands of the creditor. And a mill was here, in this case, a hand mill, which is two stones, one on top of the other, that could be ground together, and the bottom stone had a groove. And it was an essential equipment for every household. Without a mill, they couldn't grind their grain and make their daily bread. And there were no shops to buy flour, which was not as durable, not as lasting as grain. Here, the creditor is forbidden to take something that was essential for life because that was equivalent to taking a life. But no monetary debt is ever in the law of God made equivalent to a life. See, the law expects believers to be concerned with a just society, with the regulation of commercial practice in a way that protects life and doesn't compound someone's poverty by taking something essential for life. In our society, it might be the car that gets the poor person who has to live in the far outer suburbs to work. Taking that car, which is their only means of getting work. Or again, verses 14 to 15, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's in one of your towns or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. And you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets because he's poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. A hired worker was not like a servant, part of a household where his needs would be met. Hired workers were paid a daily wage, often for short-term work like harvesting. They were relying on what they earned that day to eat. And their wage, it says, should not be withheld for whatever reason. They were vulnerable, needing that work to eat at the mercy of those who would employ them. Now, the Lord says no one should be deprived of their daily needs and it is our business collectively. Verse 15, you see, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Unjust paying conditions are not merely a social or economic issue. They are sins against the just God who is the source of our wealth and expects justice to be given to all those made in his image. Now, on a personal level, we should be people who say, for example, where we have the money, who pay our bills promptly. But <coughs> this doesn't just apply to the poor and in individual dealings. Big corporations that delay paying invoices and squeeze their contractors by, de by denying cash flow or who exploit their market power to pay less than the cost of production to increase their own profits, they are acting unrighteously. They are sinning. Businesses that exploit someone's visa conditions to pay them less than the award, who seek to present the, prevent them from accessing justice by threats of deportation, are sinning against the Lord. Ours was never a privatised faith. Christians believe economic power should be regulated so that the poor and the economically vulnerable are treated with dignity and not exploited. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that where the worship of the true God in our society is abandoned in favour of worshipping idols like money, that principles of fair economic treatment are also being lost and the economically powerful becoming a law to themselves. But believers in Jesus, in whatever form we participate in the economy, should be faithful to the living God who is the God of all and practice just economic dealings and encourage that in our society. We shouldn't, for example, turn a blind eye to things like wage fests just because we are being paid okay or we're getting good meals in a restaurant for less. But So we have to live with a public faith. But to do that, we actually need to be thinking about these things and not share in in what I think is a disproportionate emphasis of much evangelical Christianity. You know, sometimes people like us, you know, people who believe in new birth and people being saved and the authority of God's word, right, we can become a people preoccupied with perhaps whether we're having a good Bible reading or with dotting doctrinal I's and crossing doctrinal T's. Now, I love doctrine. And true doctrine is essential. Having a regular plan of Bible reading oughtn't to be neglected either. But Jesus reminded another zealous group that the law confronts us with weightier matters. Justice, mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy and faithfulness. Am I acting justly is a more important question than did I have a good quiet time this morning. You can always catch up, but you need to be just. It's not either or, but one takes precedence. We should be thinking about justice, mercy and faithfulness. And again, the law shows us, teaches us these things. Again, consider Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Now, this is a famous passage because it's quoted by the Pharisees when they questioned Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19. Now, as Jesus observes there, this passage does not command divorce, but it regulates an existing practice. And as we'll see, the purpose of the regulation is actually to protect the weaker party, the woman. So, verses uh, one to three basically tell a story. There's lots of ifs. The man, you know, marries, finds something wrong with his wife, divorces her. Oh, if she goes and becomes right, lots of ifs. Leading up to the punchline, which is the prohibition on the first husband from remarrying the divorced wife, his divorced wife. This is actually what's commanded. Her former husband, verse four, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. (coughs) Now, in the story, the giving of the divorce certificate is important because it means that the woman's remarriage is legitimate and not adultery. But that divorce creates a boundary that must not be crossed by the first husband. Her marriage to her second husband is not immoral, but it has put her off limits to her first husband, defiled by him and to him. Defiled, unclean to him, both by declaring in the divorce that there is indecency in her and then in sending her away to become the husband of another man. Taking her as his wife again 
would actually suggest that there had been no real cause for the divorce and her sending away was arbitrary, that the first marriage, in a sense, should have been continuing. Now, what's the effect of this regulation of the man's behaviour? And it is, it is directed to the more powerful man. Well, it actually prevents the trivialisation of the marriage vow, where promises could be set aside at a whim, broken on a pretext. It's, it prevents that trivialisation by saying there is no going back after divorce. It's serious and final. And it also prevents the wife from economic exploitation by the first husband, whose remarriage was most probably prompted by dowry considerations, gaining access to that, perhaps even exploiting now her vulnerability and sense of shame that she's been, in a sense, through two husbands, exploiting that to get the economic advantage, either of her dowry of her or her labour. You see, the law expects justice and faithfulness in the most intimate relationships, in marriage relationships. Or again, at verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then the thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, the motive for stealing a person for kidnapping was greed. Uh, perhaps they, these people were being enslaved or sold to repay debt. But where property theft is never punished with death in the law, here alone the penalty for stealing is death. For well, this crime is like murder. It's robbing someone of life, bringing a social death, whereby they're lost to their families and all the benefits of being in the covenant community. People's lives and freedoms should be protected. They shouldn't be enslaved as they are being enslaved, whether that's by the deceit that promises them good jobs in a faraway city and lures them away from family and then imprisons them, or, or brings people out to us as indentured labourers, always in debt to their sponsors, their passports confiscated, never able to repay. We should not be indifferent to such practices but support those actively trying to free those enslaved, like the local Rahab ministry. Or again it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, the sin of parents, as the law, say the second command acknowledges, does have an effect on their offspring, and that's unavoidable as we're dependent on our parents to learn how to live in family and society, how to relate to others and God. But this law says that human courts must not punish those legally innocent. Now, we take that for granted, but in a contemporary law code, the Code of Hammurabi, it said that if a building collapsed and the son of the owner was killed, well, the son of the builder should be put to death. This law both establishes the principle of individual responsibility in the court, you are judged for your own actions, and it also prevents the taking of excessive vengeance. Now, believers have to live by this. You know, where we have authority, whether that's in our homes or the classroom or at work, 
we should make sure that our administration of authority is just, punishing people for their own actions, not the actions of others. If you're angry with one kid, don't be angry with the others, right? That's unjust. And in our attitudes to others, we must not condemn and damn people for what either their parents or their children have done, a kind of social contagion of condemnation. We have to be just, just in our dealings with all. Verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow were vulnerable for they had no one to represent them in legal proceedings. Their rights before the law, this law says, are to be respected. But justice is more than how they're treated in court. It's fair treatment, especially, as we see here, economic fair treatment. In Israel, it was their right to access the provisions the Lord had made for their economic support, like the gleaning rules or the third yearly tithe. They are not to be prevented from participating in society nor enjoying the provision provided. Again, a just society ensures access to provision made for the poor and the Lord expects believers to seek a just society. Those living amongst us like refugees should not be denied fair treatment, whether that's in work or in the provision of services for the poor. So some questions, do we engage with questions of justice? or just overlook them, or at worst, are indifferent to them as long as we're doing okay? Do we always treat others fairly? Or do we get impatient and resentful of the needy? Are we just? Or are we content with a privatised faith? But why would an Israelite live this way? Why should we? Well, it's because of the law. And because we refuse to take on the secular mindset that excludes the Lord from public life, that denies that he is the source of our prosperity, the righteous God who actively judges individuals and societies. Consciousness of the Lord and his actions go right throughout chapter 24. So the man was not to uh, take back, uh, marry again the wife he divorced, because that's an abomination to the Lord and would bring sin upon the land which was his gift. Oh, verse 7, you have to purge out the evil because the Lord's present and evil has to be purged from the midst of the people of the Lord. Verse 9, they were told they had to remember what the Lord did to Miriam. And then Deuteronomy 24, verse 10, when you make your neighbour a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Treating the poor with dignity, where his home is respected and he doesn't have to beg for his daily need for warmth to be met because his cloak has returned. 
says will be righteousness before the Lord your God. It will be reckoned as behaviour in line with his covenant, in line with loyalty to the God who said in chapter 10 that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Oh, verse 15, the hired worker can cry out to the Lord who will judge in his faith. Verse 19, that the Lord may bless you. Oh, verse 18 and 22, so that Israel can remember that they were redeemed people. So why should Israel live like this when it might cost land-holding Israelites time and money? Well, Israel's reality was that they'd been saved by the Lord to live in the Lord's land who was the source of their blessing. And the Lord is a God who abhors injustice, including economic injustice. Having received gracious and generous treatment from him, Israel were to show that in their dealings with others. He expected them to treat others as they had been treated by him. And believers in Jesus, well, we're a people who've been saved through the Lord at great cost, through the death of his son, saved by him to live in the Lord's presence, the Lord who abhors injustice, who is the God of the whole earth and who expects us to treat all others with the same kind of grace and mercy and generosity we have received from him to love even our enemies. That consciousness should flow into everything we do and especially how we engage in work and business, how we deal with those indebted to us, with those who are vulnerable to the way we use our power, whether that's economic or legal or political. We are not to be conformed in our actions to a world that excludes the living God. Yet, ask yourself, do I forget? Do I act as if I've not received grace and mercy? as if the Lord doesn't hear and judge? Do I let myself start to think that maybe those who are less well off are somehow inferior to me, less made in God's image? Do I start to let myself to be rude and abrupt, as if the Lord has not shown me great patience and kindness? The law confronts our self-preoccupation our privatised religion, our disproportionate emphasis, our embracing that secular mindset. And in doing so, it shows up our spiritual self-reliance and self-sufficiency. I don't know about you, but I find it easy. Mixing with people basically like me, nice people. And comparing myself to others in our society, I find it easy to think I am better than I am and therefore to put more confidence in my own ability to be a basically decent person and to get on and do what God wants all by myself. Now, I don't think I'm alone in this. We live in a society that wants to insist that by ourselves we can live perfectly decent lives. But the law, if I think about it, with its insistence on generosity, integrity, Holiness that separates itself from everything impure with its call for consistent, thoughtful kindness with treating all with dignity and justice. The law, by allowing the Lord who sees all things to be taken out of the... by not allowing the Lord who sees all things to be taken out of the picture, insisting that he should be loved and trusted and obeyed even when it seems to go against my self-interest, 
and insisting that his righteousness should be expressed in the behaviour of his people. The law, with its unwavering insistence on measuring our lives against an objective moral standard outside of us, not shaped by us, humbles me, and if you read it, humbles you. Passing its measure over the way I treat God and others, the law tells me that I am not and I cannot be the kind of person who can live in the holy God's presence by myself. I can't rely on myself to be right with God. What I do will never be enough. I fall short of his justice and generosity of his love. And that's not just me. It's all of us, isn't it? All have sinned and fall short. And being humbled by the law, reminded that's actually good for me and for you, isn't it? For it turns us to the one the law points to, who fulfills the law. It makes me rely on Jesus, who lived a perfect law-abiding life, who died cursed by the Lord, taking my curse upon himself, who rose from the dead. It makes me rely on Jesus, not just as a formal assent to doctrine, but desperately as my only hope. And the law tells me over and over again, doesn't it, that it's only in Jesus' death that my failure to keep God's good, just law, my failure of love, of love of God and love of others, my failure of justice, well, the law tells me it's only in Jesus' death that that failure can be dealt with. And so, actually, the law helps me counter the other great besetting sin that poisons our Christian lives in the 21st century, and that is ingratitude. It's a paradox, isn't it? The most materially blessed of peoples across the centuries. Yet we are more often anxious than thankful. Perhaps not about food and clothing, but our houses, our jobs, our retirement, our appearance, all of which will perish. The law, by reminding us of God's holiness, of our sin and our lack of love, by reminding us of God's judgment and pointing us to our Saviour, focuses us on what matters. Relationship with the living God, whose word is life. And it actually focuses us on what can never be taken away from us. Our God's rescue of us from a deserved judgment and death by the life, the death, the rising of his son. And it reminds us of the reality of his grace and goodness to us undeserving people. The law actually directs us to the source of ever-renewed thankfulness, a cause for thankfulness even if we lose everything in this life, life itself, as we most certainly will. You see, taking the law and its judgment on ourselves and letting, us point to, point, letting it point us to the Lord Jesus gives us actually a heart that can sing with gratitude to the good holy, righteous God of all, all the time. <clears throat> so receiving Deuteronomy with faith, studying it with faith, is given to us by our good God for our good to help us to trust and follow Jesus. 
nurtures the life of faith amongst us. And that's why we study it in private and in public. So listen to it. Share it with your children and let it turn your way from a self-preoccupied life to a life of loving others, from a narrow privatised faith to one that acknowledges our Lord to be the Lord of all, of every sphere of life, including economic life, and then seeks to live by faith in him in all of life, including all our dealings in the world. Let this law correct you so that, you know, you loved by our good God, come to be concerned with what he is concerned with, justice, mercy and faithfulness. And do that because learning from the law how far you fall short of love, love of God and love of neighbour, you are full of thankfulness for the mercy, grace and love the Lord has shown you in saving you through the death of his son Jesus saving you while upholding his justice, being faithful to his promises, but showering us with a rich, rich mercy. Let's pray.